Hey, this is Dave Pryor for Drunken PM Radio. If you're listening to this on projectmanagement.com, this shows up under the Reluctant Agilist. All the podcasts we do are about people who are trying to make the switch from traditional project management over to Agile or people who have already found their way over. And today, Declan Whelan is here, and he's somebody who has definitely found his way all the way to the other side. So, Declan, thank you for taking time out of your afternoon. Oh, it's my pleasure. Nice nice to be on board here, Dave. So, Declan, if you're not familiar with him, he's on the board of the Agile Alliance. And can you t- actually, it's probably better if you talk a little bit about your background. Can you let the folks know a little bit about who you are? Sure. Um, I'm, I'm an electrical engineer, but I've been doing software all my life, and that's been a oh, professional life, and that's been about 40 years. So I've chosen a career path that kept me close to technology and coding, which I love. And, um, and that journey has really taken me through to being an agile coach. Okay. Uh, and primarily focusing on technical practices. All right. And, and how long have you been on the board of the Alliance? This will be my... Uh, fifth year. Wow. And I'll have one more year. Yeah. Okay. Um, and in case you were at the Agile conference this year, if you were out on the last night for the big party, Declan was the person that you probably uh, felt the sorriest for because walking around dressed up in an incredibly hot costume. <laughs> hot in the sense of temperature hot, yeah, yeah. to be clear. <laughs> well, sexy in its own way, but yes. I mean, you must have been boiling uh, in that thing. Uh, it was warm, but I was prepared for the heat. So it was I, sort of strangely, it was okay. It okay. was actually pretty good. I had a good time. Cool. So. Well, I'll, I'll try and see if I can dig up a picture of, of the – what was the costume <laughs> for? Um, I was promoting um, a session, a series of sessions called the uh, Agile Salon. And okay. I was dressed as a salonier, which was a, a figure in the 17th and 18th century in Europe that really promoted conversations um, around politics, art, and really sort of moved the uh, agenda forward uh, in a sort of an intellectual way. Cool. Okay. Yeah. So if you weren't at the conferences or you missed out on a lot of great stuff. So all the things going on with the salon and with the Star Wars talks, and there's there's a lot of really heavy, heavy conversations that happen at the conference. Um, one of the things that you and I were talking about when um, we were talking in the hallway was technical debt and your passion around yeah. that. So that's what we're going to talk about today. But for, for folks who come from like my kind of PMP background, the folks who may not be totally familiar with technical debt, how would you describe it? Well, uh, it was a term that was first coined by Ward Cunningham, um, you know, who was one of the signatories on the manifesto. And he really was explaining how doing software well, if we have the abstractions right and our code is well, matches well with the problem that we're trying to solve, then we're in a good shape. If if our code doesn't express our understanding of the problem that we're trying to solve, then that's going to slow us down as we build uh, features down the road. Okay. And he he likened that to uh, to debt, where you may have have uh, like a credit card, and the fact that you have overpurchased or some uh, you're you're in some debt means that you're going to pay interest on that debt, and that interest in technical debt shows up as slowed time, additional time that it takes to put out new features. That was the original uh, definition from Ward. I think I got it pretty close to right. Okay. Now, do you and, think that's evolved? Has it changed over time? Well, it, it has t- because a lot of the 
measures that Ward was talking about were not, uh, were very much about, you know, is our model correct? Does our code express the understanding of the system we're trying to build? You know, he was, I think, said something like, there's never a good reason to write crappy code. So it wasn't about, originally it was not about writing poorly crafted code. It was about not having the design quite right. Okay. And I, th I think since then, when most people talk about technical debt, they are including sort of the crappy code stuff. And hence, we have a lot of uh, metrics around cyclomatic complexity and number of lines of code in a method and so on and so forth, which are really, to me, primarily about you know crappy code or potentially crappy code. And it's not what Ward intended. But that's what most people mean now. And I'm, I'm sort of okay with that. I, I team, I work at the Agile Alliance, uh, technical debt initiative and our team sort of has a working definition of it's things in the code that slow you down. Okay. So it could be crappy code, but it could also be what Ward had originally intended. That's how I frame it. So can I, I want to check my understanding of it. Cause I, I think I had maybe because of my background, I came to it with a slightly more pedestrian understanding. Anytime somebody says, Oh, we'll fix it later on. We'll fix it. We just have to get it out the door. Any, and I would extend it even to anytime somebody says, we'll write the documentation later, that's all debt that you have to pay back. Is that too broad a definition? I think that's a pretty good working definition. Um, I like to frame it as uh, impediment to flow. Anything in the code okay. that slows you down unnecessarily, shall we say. Okay. And you're probably right. You're tapping into a system problem that we'll, I'm sure we'll get to, which yeah. is there's nothing potentially wrong with taking on technical debt as long as you pay it back and that's the problem and you could uh, ask anyone with an overextended credit card they know the pain of that <laughs> well and you can't file technical bankruptcy <laughs> well you sort of can but yeah the, the like any metaphor it has limits and i think bankruptcy is one where the where the metaphor is definitely stretched okay all right so um when we were talking about it you you mentioned a way of reframing technical debt so that it is Something. I mean, one of the things, it's, it's sort of like this burden. It's got this very negative connotation. Um, and you were talking about trying to spin it so it had a slightly more positive focus. Can you talk about that a little bit? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, I, looking at uh, positive psychology and mental health, and I, uh, and I realized that, you know, in that field, when if you have somebody that's suffering from, say, anxiety or depression, and you treat the sort of the symptoms that they have, the things that, you know, are really dragging them down. You, you can get you can get people successfully to a state of, oh, I'm okay now. But if you apply positive psychology, then you can get much stronger outcomes where people are actually much happier. So rather than trying to remove the, the badness, why don't we dial up the goodness? So I thought, you know, technical debt sounds like this big burden that you're carrying around with you. And I thought that uh, it might make sense to have a more positive frame, which is like, what is our technical health? Okay. And that was, it started out for me really trying to have a term that tapped into a more of a positive psychology. That was where it started and it's sort of grown from there, but that was really the, the thing I was after. So to me, it was just, uh, you know, trying to switch the frame of the conversation to a more positive one. And is that more because of the executives? Like a, I, what I've seen with executives in technical debt is it's this thing that they just keep ignoring and punting it down the field because the new thing they want to build is sexier and they don't really want to bother to go clean the basement. If you talk about, if you talk about it in a positive way, does that change their approach to it? 
Uh, I think it. I think it has the potential to do that. I don't have enough data to yet prove that or okay. show that, but I think it does because, like, for one thing, from an executive perspective, you know, going into debt is no problem. We go into debt all the time. We buy yeah. houses. We buy cars. We, we buy debt companies. So to yeah, so to some extent, you know, debt. Oh, what's the big deal? That's just part of doing business. Whereas. Really, what we're talking about is, you know, our inability to deliver uh, valuable features, you know, at, at market cadence is actually a business detriment. So if we start to talk about, like, how quickly can we deliver new features that are high quality features, you know, that's important because now you're talking about time to market, uh, um, you know, out, outperforming the competition. So it shifts the conversation certainly from a, from, at a business level. Okay. Um, I did have I, I had a, I hosted a workshop at uh, Agile 2017, and um, it was over two days, and it was pretty interesting. On the first day, uh, after the first day, someone came back to me and said, "You know, I was I had been working on this project that had lots of technical debt, and I was sort of really concerned because we we're just building feature after feature, and we weren't taking care of this, and I wasn't able to get the seat." attention. But then when I shifted the conversation to, you know, we should really think about our technical health and how quickly and reliably we can build new features. And we think that that's important. That completely changed the conversation. The CEO said, yeah, we should definitely take care of that. So um, I think it has the potential to shift the conversation. Okay. So what, what, um, what causes it? I mean, I know that people cause it, but there's got to be something within the organization that is allowing this to happen, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that's where we're, you know, that's where I'm uh, encouraging people to start to think about how technical debt happens through system thinking. And, um, you know, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll mention, you know, the software craftsmanship movement, which I think has been, you know, really great. I think, you know, one thing that's often missed with agile uh, transformation and agile teams is is how the technical practices need to shift. And that's where I think software craftsmanship comes into play. But in many of the organizations that I've worked with, it's software craftsmanship is a necessary but insufficient uh, mechanism to address the technical debt and technical health issues that they have. Um, for example, you know, if you're continually outsourcing or if you have a revolving door around developers on your team, you're going to have technical debt and has really very little to do with the individual professionalism of the developers. They're probably doing the best they can. It's the system around them that's causing them to have to act in a certain way. So I like to have a view that programmers and developers and testers and everyone on the team is, is acting in a rational way. They're responding to the system they're in. And very often the system that they're in, sort of the, the natural uh, response to that, that is to incur technical debt. Okay. Can I try to draw a parallel? I want, I want to check in and see if this, if this makes sense. Um, so I live in Oklahoma, which is like the obesity capital of the country. And it's easy for you know anybody who wants to take on the obesity problem to say, well, people should stop eating bad food. They should stop buying all that garbage in Walmart. But if that's the only food that some people can afford, that's what they're going to buy. And as long as the unhealthy food is cheaper than the healthier food, the system is set up to continue to cause the health problems for them or to you know create uh, an environment where that kind of continues to grow. Is that is that a decent parallel? It is. And I don't know a lot about obesity, but I think it has been 
I know that systems thinking has been applied to it and the root causes of, obes of, of obesity, you know, jump into things like education and poverty level. Yes. And other, other things that have a lot, don't have a lot to do with people's willpower. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it'd, be fine, it'd be easy to say like, don't write bad code, don't eat junk food. But if your environment is, your work environment is just get it out the door as fast as you can, or, you know, you can either not eat or you can eat this Big Mac. I mean, what are you going to do? That's all you got. Yeah. You know, a, a good example of where this might come into play is an organization that's outsourcing some project work and they'll likely frame up a statement of work and all of, you know, possibly, you know, um, some incentives or penalties for hitting or not hitting the dates, et cetera, so that the organization that's writing that code is completely focused on hitting their three month deliverable. And, and so they will optimize for that and at the expense of sort of long-term maintainability of the code, very likely, unless you take something specifically to address that. So that's a, probably, a, I would say, a relatively common example of how technical debt happens through, system, through systemic forces, which is how we hire and staff our, to get our work done. Okay. Now, if, if the average tenure of a CEO is just, you know, like a half a year to a year, maybe a year and a half... Um, I can sort of see where it would be easier to just punt on this one and let the next guy deal with it. How, how do you, if we have to get the people that are building the code to take a different approach to it, how do you approach that conversation with somebody who may only be in their spot for, you know, 18 months to have them worry about this kind of technical wellness of the company? I would imagine that um, a lot of uh, technical debt uh, remedies could have very quick turnarounds in, in terms of impact. So for example, just focusing on the areas that hurt you, hurt you the most and are the easiest to fix, focusing on things like cycle time, et cetera. I mean, if you can prove or provide metrics to those executives that are important at a business level, such as time to market, um, uh, time spent, fixing bugs rather than building new value. If you can tap into things like that that are valuable to that executive, then I think you got to, you know, you at least have a starting point to have more effective conversations about what to do with it. Okay. So, so towards that end, like how do you, um, how do you go about measuring the health, technical health of an or, or debt of an organization? Are there ways that you are approaching looking at it that creates more clarity for people? Um, on, on the agile initiative, we we did create a standard called the A2DAM, uh, which was a very abbreviated or simplified set of metrics that would likely make sense to technical folks, such as cyclomatic complexity, uh, number of lines of code, et cetera. Um, what I've found, however, is I, I tend to look for more simple measures. So a couple of measures that I like to ask teams are, how much of your time do you spend writing new features versus troubleshooting, diagnosing problems, fixing bugs. That's a really good number to sort of have. And it's easy, that's easy to measure. And it could even be, um, you know, what percentage of your time or if you've got timesheets, that's a pretty easy thing to get. The second metric that I really like to ask teams is if this code were really well structured, how much faster could you go? And when you multiply those two numbers, you can get a, a number which would say how much of our effort is actually spent delivering new value. And um, I'm often shocked at how low that number is. That might get 
executive attention. And then technical debt then becomes the thing that's preventing you from getting a higher number there, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's creating the drag on the organization. And you could probably easily turn that into dollars, right? If, you're, if you say, well, our people are losing you know 20% of their time to break fix because we didn't do proper testing up front, then that's time they're not spent developing and they've got all the context switching. You could turn that into dollars and maybe explain like this is why it's worth investing the money because over a year, look at how much we're going to lose. Exactly. Okay. And and so how do they go about predicting how much faster they'd be able to go? Is it just identifying like in the flow or in the value stream where the breakdowns are and, and trying to estimate how that would be removed or improved? I've kept it as pretty simple. Like, you know, percentage-wise, how much faster could you go? Or maybe a multiplicative factor, like could you go twice as fast? Could you go three times as fast? And if you if you just keep your finger on that pulse, um, that's that's one way that you could measure it. I mean, you could certainly then, as you're starting to remedy it, you could start to put in uh, other metrics, such as you know, if you're in a lean situation, like is your cycle time reduced? Um, if you're counting points, are you delivering more points? Although that's always a dangerous metric to measure, um, measure team success by, although it's a good diagnostic measure for technical debt. So basically measuring the effectiveness of your throughput will be one way to track it. But I really like to keep it low tech, like really simple. Like okay. how fast do you think you could go? Yeah. Okay. So what if, if I was working and if I was leading an organization and I, you know, just bought into this conversation and decided that, you know, I wanted to have this kind of technical wellness program and health is going to be a big part of it and maybe some other factors as well. Um, so that guy over there, he's going to just fix stuff forever. He's going to quit, right? I mean, nobody wants to do technical debt all the time. It's not fun. I'm assuming, I mean, you come from, you come from a technical background. Like if you, as an electrical engineer, if you were sent into a building and all you got to do was fix sloppy work that other people had done, that would be a drag, right? It could be. I've been, you, you know, I I actually really like working on legacy code. I love getting code that's difficult to work in and make it better because it's sort of intellectually, to me, a more interesting challenge than writing Greenfield. Although the Greenfield is fun too. Um, so where I see frustrations with teams is less about I have to fix this stuff, but sort of the inability or the, you know, the lack of uh, authority or accountability to actually address it. So that's where the real pain is. I know this sucks and I'm trapped. I can't do anything about it. So I find that uh, a lot of teams get pretty motivated if they can actually fix some of that technical debt because it's reducing, you know, it reduces pain. It's, it, it, it's helpful. Um, I wouldn't want to be always fixing bugs. That would be painful. But if I could actually fix root causes and make the code better, then I'm actually really happy to do that kind of work. Okay. So it just, it would take, I, I guess it would take the kind of person who sees it as more of an intellectual challenge and not just, I'm the guy that's got to clean the bathrooms because that's what, at least a lot of the folks that I talk to, that's the way they look at the person who's got to do break fixes, like the noob that has to learn the system or the intern, like we don't want to deal with that. So we just push it off on that guy. But if you take the approach that this is a bigger issue, we need people who are big problem solvers in here, then that's, it's a little cooler, right? Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, probably the biggest tool that I use to encourage teams to use to address technical debt is just to have a, you know, the Boy Scout rule from uh, Uncle Bob, which is, you know, leave the code cleaner than you got it. And it sounds so simple, but it's so powerful because technical debt 
only matters when you have to modify that code. So you could have some horrible code, but if it never changes, who cares? What really hurts you is the code that you have to work in on a constant basis and continually modify. So by having a Boy Scout rule, leave the code cleaner than you found it, then the, that, that energy of making the code better is going to be focused on the code that changes the most and therefore where you have the most impact. So some simple things like that can be pretty effective to start to whittle it down. So from a practical standpoint, if you were maintaining like a prioritized backlog, um, would you want to keep the technical debt in with the rest of the stuff in the product backlog? Or do you want, because I'm imagining that the impact and the sizing of these things is going to be different. Like, would you, would you want them separated or, or put together? It's a great question. First rule I would put into place or would encourage teams to put into place would be to adopt something like the Boy Scout rule. And if at all possible, avoid having technical debt specific tasks or stories in your backlog. Okay, so hang, can, wait, hold on for one second. So how do you do that? Because that, that, I got a little confused on that one. How are you going to avoid having a story about technical debt if the thing is broken and slowing you down? So by putting something like the Boy Scout rule in place, then you're making the code a little bit better every day and you'll get a compound interest on those improvements. The challenge that you're talking about, I think, is, okay, we have this like big technical debt problem. Like we have, uh, we have to switch the way we use stored procedures to a whole new paradigm, in which case, you know, that would be then worth thinking about in terms of putting that in the backlog. Um, other things that I've seen teams do would be, you know, put in one, one story per week that would fix the technical debt or have one sprint every two months where we focus on technical debt. Uh, I generally find the most powerful technique is something like the Boy Scout rule. However, I, I hope that makes some sense. It, it does, it, but it makes sense to me. And it also sounds a little bit like the whole financial thing of always round up and put your change in this thing and you'll just have like a dollar and change every day. But over a year, that's going to add up to a, a big savings. Um, I, I guess I'm I'm more familiar with the situation where they've been <laughs> accumulating technical debt for 10 years. This thing's falling over and and kind of where I was going with the backlog thing is I could sit down with the team and say, look, let's list all the technical debt we know about, all the things we know that are impeded. And, and if you agree that you're always going to leave the room better than it was when you found it, that's wonderful. But we've still got to find a way of assessing business impact of all these things that are slowing us down and prioritize them for the team to do, whether it's, you know, one person, a sprint gets dedicated to it or one sprint every couple of months or whatever. Um, is that, is that going to be something that you would expect a product owner to do? Or is that something that because of the technical nature of it is going to need like an architect or somebody on the dev side who can actually look at that and assess what the potential impact of fixing this issue is? If you're on a scrum team, I think that would likely fall on some you know, technical expertise, architects, devs to identify and, and, and estimate the fix and then work with the product owner to prioritize that and be able to convince the product owner that it makes sense from a business perspective to make this investment. The thing that I worry about with those techniques, though, is that often it's the systemic forces that like what caused this to happen in the first place. So if, if we just fix it up and we don't really tackle like why did this happen in the first place, 
then you know, we're just likely to repeat. And, you know, I often see that where, you know, it's three, four years in and the only option that the teams put on the table is this needs a rewrite. And often those, you know, on the promise of some like super cool technology that will fix all this and the teams embark on that. And then, you know, three to five years down the road, they're having the same conversations because they haven't fundamentally addressed the system's issues. So I think it's more important to start to step back and say, like, why, why are we creating this technical debt? What is it in our system that's causing this to happen? And let's start to tackle that and prevent new technical debt from coming in. Okay. Now, because of your role in the Alliance and the fact that you've been working on this for a while, I have sort of a bigger question about this for you. Um, on the coding side, like I could... It doesn't seem to me like it would be too much of a stretch for you to sit down with a bunch of fairly enlightened people on the development side and have a conversation about why this is a critical thing to address. But I'm wondering if as different organizations mature in their approach to you know development or agility, um, is this something that you see people paying more attention to at the senior level or even at the PMO level? Like, is, is Do they have awareness of the need for this or is it still like... They just don't think about it. I think organizations will start to care about it more when, you know, as the expectations from customers around, you know, the, the pace at which new features come out and the quality of the interactions and the uptime, uh, the, these things will be detrimentally impacted by technical debt. Or let me phrase it another way. If we have a technically healthy system, then that's going to actually help us achieve our business outcomes. So I think um, this is one spot where rather than talk about this bag of bricks we're hauling around over our shoulder, instead talk about you know, how can we leverage our technology better to service our business needs, I think leads to a better conversation around that. Yeah, it almost, it sounds to me like one of the things that comes up a lot, at least in the classes I teach, is that people from PMOs, they don't really understand what their role is a lot of the time anymore. And this is another area where I can see they could have a massive impact in terms of creating a technical wellness awareness program. Like the fact that you have to pay attention to this stuff, that it is as important as the new features and you want to be you know, devoting time to, to spend on cleaning it up in a constant way and following that Boy Scout rule, like you mentioned, you know, always leave it better than it was before. Uh, it is, I can see where it would cause a bit of a struggle in, in the sense that there are so many people who flock to Agile because they think we can have what we want faster all the time. Well, yeah, but you got to pay off that debt to be able to get there. Like, the, the, the golden thing out there in the distance that we're trying to get to isn't as, as achievable if we're dragging like that bag of bricks behind us and we have to figure out why we picked up the bricks in the first place. Right. Yeah. And, you know, J.B. Rainsberger said something that's really sat with me for many years and it's, you know, Agile is about delivering sooner, not faster. So it's about getting quicker feedback loops and, you know, when you think about it through a technical health lens, then it might make sense for organizations, for example, to separate out when they're doing customer discovery and build, measure, learn loops, where we could intentionally take on technical debt to find out, is this a feature worth building? Is this a product worth building? Is this a service worth offering? And once we have an answer to that question, then we proceed to say, okay, now we can make this 
a sustainable thing for our business, which is going to require us to invest in technical health. So I think separating out that experimental work from sort of the production work is one way that organizations can get that fast response time that they like, but not fall into the trap of, oh, you, you know, we proved this work, so, you know, sh ship it, you know, yeah. showware or demoware becoming production code. And that's a big, that's a big challenge in organizations. Yeah, it's, it's interesting I, to me because when I used to do, I mean, I haven't done it in a little while, but when I used to do assessments of companies that were trying to get agile practices in play, I don't remember spending a lot of time digging into the technical debt. And it seems like that would be, you know, as important as anything else. Yeah. And, and I think I think of it this way as technical health is sort of an understanding of the system that's that that you have that's producing value. And technical debt is one measure of how effective that system is. And by having, you know, so now I've taken technical health beyond just a re, you know, switching the word around to expanding out and thinking of it as a systems thing. So, for example, over what time frame should we optimize our technical decisions? So the problem with probably the number one problem that I see with organizations at a systems level that lead to technical debt are that they are optimizing for projects. So they have projects flowing and they're making decisions over the time horizon of that project deliverable, even though that product or service might have a three, five-year lifetime. So they're not optimizing decisions for the, for the, long for the term. appropriate time horizon. Yeah. So being, being very clear and explicit about what is the duration of this product and service and optimizing decisions over that time horizon is one way to start to move away from making sort of short-term short -term decisions that are going to bite you you know, a year from now. I think it's really good that you're from Canada because if you were from the U.S., I would want to drive this into a whole conversation about the debt ceiling, but I think that would be a very <laughs> unsafe place to go. <laughs> so, so that's good. So you've been working on this for a while, and um, I know that the, you mentioned before that the Alliance has an initiative around it. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, we've been together for three years now, and it's a group of experts uh, from around the world, I would say, and um, we have provided, uh, you know, a, a fair number of resources uh, for people to use around technical debt. Like, what is it? How do I measure it? Um, what are some things that I could do as a project manager or portfolio manager to deal with technical debt? And um, you know, what things could be effective within teams? So, you know, I'd encourage anyone to go check out uh, the Agile Alliance Technical Debt Initiative. We have a uh, one of the one of the members of the team created a game which is called uh, you know dice of debt where it's about takes about half an hour to play and teams can play that and that really is a great way to trigger conversation around technical debt and get people thinking about it in in their context and it's sort of fun to play too cool and so I'll make sure to include a link to this um, in the show notes for the site um, I want to ask you one more question so you've got um, a big event coming up a virtual event with the Alliance. Yeah, there's an event called On Agile 2017, and it's an online conference uh, hosted by the Agile Alliance. And, and what's really great about this is that people can attend from their uh, from their offices or for their homes and around the world. And it's extremely inexpensive, $49 for Agile Alliance members and $79 if you're not on Agile. Expensive, and um, the great part is it's available you know, to anybody in the world to join, and all, all of the 
sessions will be recorded and you will be able to play them back at any time. And the cool part about this year's uh, focus is on getting back to basics. We have a lot of different complex frameworks out there. And this is about how do we get back to like core basic agility. And how do you define that? Because a lot of people define that different ways. So I'm curious for your take on it. To me, it's mostly about really focusing, are we delivering value to the customers that are using our products and services? You know, And are we creating a place where we make our customers awesome, but we also make our team members awesome. We make other stakeholders within our organizations awesome. And we often don't need complicated frameworks to do that. We just need to focus on, on those things with uh, ex- extreme prejudice, like really focusing down. And I, uh, we just really need to focus on those things. And I would encourage anybody to check out the program and uh, the, some of the speakers I have been identified. And, and um, I think it's going to be an awesome event. Cool. So again, this is going to take place on October 25th. Uh, it starts at 8 a.m. Eastern. I'm going to make sure to include a link to the registration page in the show notes. Um, and I lied. I have I have two more questions for you. Do you have time for two quick questions? Absolutely. Okay. So twice in the interview, at least twice, you talked about cyclomatic complexity. And I'm just going to play the dunce and admit that I don't know what that is. So <laughs> what is it? It's it, it's really just a measure of how many paths through the code are there. If you just have if you don't have any if statements, then the cyclomatic complexity would be one. If you have a, a branch, a single branch, then there's two paths through that code. So that would be a cyclomatic complexity of two. So it's a very pretty simple measure, and it just turns out that's uh, a really good predictor of where your bugs are going to be and how difficult the code is to change. The higher the cyclomatic complexity. Okay, so the fact that I don't know that I'm not a programmer, I don't have to have shame because of that, it sounds like. Uh, no, you don't need to. And just I have personally seen code up around the thousand mark. So a single function that has a basically a thousand decision or loop points in that code. It sounds basically, like a great opportunity. <laughs> that's what we call you know a big ball of mud. Yeah, yeah, okay. I think mud was a good choice there. Um, all right, last question. Um, so you're on the board of the Alliance. You've been doing this stuff for a long time. You come from a very technical background. Um, one of the questions, one of the things that I, I talk about when I'm teaching folks, I usually get them on the newer side. Like they're kind of coming into this and they're trying to get their head around Scrum or something, you know, that is is not basic, but not as complex as some of the stuff that you're dealing with. One of the things that I say to the folks in the class is that you're never going to be like a full-on expert. You're never going to get all the stuff. You're never going to know everything. Is there something in Agile or around development in general that you are currently trying to study and, and learn more about that you feel like, I really need to know this better. I wish I understood it more than I do. Well, you know, definitely I'm interested in this technical health view and really applying systems thinking to some of the challenges organizations have in delivering value effectively. I think one thing that I've been interested in uh, in the last, say, six months or so is looking at uh, Internet of Things and data flow. And it's challenging me to think about less about sort of domain object-oriented design and more about about how, how does data flow through our organizations because with the emergence of Internet of Things and big data, I think a lot of the 
practices that served me really well in sort of very logic-centric work, like object-oriented design and so on, I'm finding are, are being replaced by more functional programming and, and putting data in the cloud. So that's an area that I'm sort of interested in exploring myself right now. Cool. Declan, thank you. I know, you, I know you've got to go, and I promised I'd finish by one minute ago, so I'll, I'll try to wrap it up really quick. Um, if people want to get in touch with you, um, Lean Into It is where you work and, you, and you're coaching. You're also on the board uh, of the Agile Alliance, and I will include your Twitter and your LinkedIn as well. Um, is there any other way you'd like people to contact you, or is that pretty much the best ways to get in touch with you? That's the best way. Okay. Yeah, leanintoit.com is the website, and D. Whelan is my Twitter. Twitter handle. Cool. Uh, and I would love to hear about from anybody that's interested in technical health and technical debt. And uh, thank you for having me on, Dave. Oh, no. Thanks for being here. I appreciate it. And sorry for keeping you late, but I'll let you go. I, I'm just, thank you for taking this time. No worries. 